Hello and welcome along to the RTE Rugby Podcast. It's the Six Nations break week. Ireland, two wins out of two so far. Two bonus point wins out of two. 36-0 against Italy at the Viva Stadium. Six tries, never in doubt. No game this week. United Rugby Championship is back. But there is still a lot to talk about. I'm joined by Bernard Jackman and Johnny Murphy. Afternoon, fellas. Afternoon, yeah. Good afternoon. Um, before I talk about the game against Italy and look back at that, I will actually get straight in and talk about the game against Wales next week because um, it looks like there's probably a, a bit of a selection for Andy Farrell to make. A lot of reports at the moment. Hugo Keenan, he picked up a bit of a knee injury against Italy in the second half on Sunday. Early indications are that it doesn't look long-term, but there's a good chance he's not going to be fit for the, the game against Wales. And... I suppose if this was to have happened 12 months ago, instantly, Bert, you'd be thinking, OK, one of Mac Hansen or Jimmy O'Brien can can easily slot in there. It should be fine. Obviously, both of those players are out at the moment and it creates a a nice little bit of a selection dilemma as to, to what to do with that 15 shirt potentially next week. Yeah, very interesting. Um, um... And I think, obviously, he could move James Lowe there. He could bring Shane Daly in. He could move Jack Crowley back to 15 and and play with Harry Byrne just as part of just seeing, giving Harry another opportunity. Obviously, Harry played off the bench at the weekend. Jack's been class, but and Jack's clearly number one. But obviously, having a 10 who can play fullback mid-game, it gives, you know, Ireland showed against France, they went 6-2. So if they, we do that in the future and Jack Crowley has, I know he's played before, but if he's played a Six Nations game at uh, at 12 or 15, um, that could be a strength to his bow. I think Fire will relish this. I mean, obviously, he doesn't like Hugh King's really important to us, but he is apparently he lives it that he wants the team to have a little bit of adversity and, and challenges and people step up and, and they generally do. So Hugo's been a, I suppose, a consistent, a incredibly consistent player for, for Ireland and ultimately very durable. And if he is to miss that game, it will give someone else a chance. But as you said, without Mac or um, in particular, Jimmy O'Brien, there's no obvious replacement who's going to step in there. Yeah, it's funny you say like he was embracing all those injury challenges last year. It got to the point he was talking about it so much. I was wondering, was he actually going out and injuring the players himself? But um, <laughs> <laughs> as Birch said, Johnny, like there's no standout candidate to go in there, but there are plenty of legitimate candidates. So as you said, like, you know, you've got Jack Crowley who could go in there and potentially play Frawley or Harry Byrne at 10. Kieran Frawley could easily go in there as well. Uh, Jordan Larmer, Jacob Stockdale. um all players who have had experience playing at full back. And even if you want to get a bit mad, like put James Lowe back there or something. And, you know, you still have the big, the big kicking option. What, what would you like to see him do next week? If he does have to make that decision? Now, I think maybe Kieran Frawley could, could slot in there. He's, he's fitted in there for Leinster at times when they rotated or uh, when uh, Keenan's been kind of away during the Christmas period, um, and then you're not reshuffling the deck too much. Um, Jack Crowley is going very well. He's both he's showed kind of a few added strings to his bow there at the weekend in terms of his running game, how flat he can play to the line, his offloading, um, his physicality. So do you just kind of want to give him a bit more game time and, and leave that kind of nine ten axis or particularly that ten axis kind of uh, solidify itself there. Um, but I think the two options will probably be Frawley or as Bert said, play um, you know, Harry Byrne and then move move Crowley back to, to 15. But I think they probably like in terms of how they play, they like that extra distributor in the back and organizing on the blind side that Hugo Keenan does a huge amount of and his his work rate overall from a backfield perspective is absolutely ridiculous. Um so he is going to be a loss, but they have to find and figure someone out that when they are missing, you know, they're probably down to look at probably their fourth choice option at 15 with, you know, Mac and Mac Hansen and, and Jimmy O'Brien out. But yeah, I think they already have that left foot option in James Lowe and, and he works well on that left wing. So probably one of the, the, the you know, the versatility of Crowley or, or, or Frawley for me fits in fits in that pocket. And Bert, like you ran through some of the options there. Which Which one would you prefer to see back there? I actually, for the sake of um, uh, for the sake of progression, either Frawley, who obviously, um, if he goes six two, is a really good value is, is really good value there. I'd like to see him get some Six Nations time. Big fan of his, or give Harry Byrne a start at ten. I, I think Wales isn't 
a scary game for us. You know, everybody is in such good form. It would be great to see Harry Byrne get 60 minutes at, at 10 and, and Crowley uh, play a fullback. It would be either Frawley or, or Crowley fullback for me. On Harry Byrne, actually, he, he got a nice little cameo off the off the bench on Sunday, Johnny, and he was someone, like, he hasn't played for Ireland for more than two years and so partly through just the consistent run of injuries that was kind of hampering him and partly through a bit of form as well, but he got a chance on Sunday and in fairness to him, he he put in a few, like, whatever he could in the, the 20, 30 minutes that he was out there, but some nice little positive involvements. He tried one of those little classic Johnny Sexton wraparounds just after he came on. It didn't work out. It was probably a bad pass from Robbie Henshaw more than anything, but for um, uh, for which try was it over on the far side? For James Lowe's try, for example, brought that ball right up to the line, got a, got the pass away quite late and got a, a whack in the ribs for his troubles as well, but... It's that sort of stuff that we were praising Jack Crowley for last week of, you know, bringing the ball up, up right to the point of contact and, and opening up defences like that. He did himself no harm on Sunday. No, not at all. Uh, he's a top-class player. Um, and I think probably the opportunity, obviously with Johnny, um, you know, retiring, the opportunity for kind of those three, four tens that are are in and around the mix there with obviously Ross being injured, Sam being brought, Sam Prendergast being brought in as that development player, um, you know, the opportunities that that come their way with Crowley being clear first choice, they have to take them when they get them. Otherwise there's someone else that 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 will pop up. So um yeah, he 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 was good and he he's a really high quality player. He's just been very unlucky with the run of injuries, as you said. But um I think the more game time that he can get, the more robust he'll become. It's kind of a chicken egg you know, situation where you want to get really fit and get more game time, but when you keep getting those knocks and they keep setting you back, it's very hard to kind of get that robustness in because you're not doing kind of the day-to-day training of of um you know of, of everyone else. So but yeah, he was he was very good and and he's a live option um, you know, going forward. It'd be a tough one for Keenan, obviously. I know he's got a nice little run birch in terms of starts over the last three, three and a half seasons now. Um, but he was having I thought one of his best games for, for a while on on Sunday. Like he was early on in the match when the game was lacking a bit of spark. It was him that actually provided with that quick tap of the mark and breaking up the pitch leading to the to the first try and was looking really, really sharp, counter attacking as well. A it's going to be interesting to see whoever does go back there, how they fit into the role he plays, because he does do so much for the team, both defensively and offensively. Yeah, no, and he's like one of the, he's obviously one of the most stand, standout performers in terms of consistency, but I think he's got a massive leadership role. And I think watching from behind the, uh, the stand, uh, behind the goals at the weekend, like his talk off the ball, his ability to, to help James Lowe and, and, um, uh, Calvin Nash being in the right position um, his movement so once he triggers that there's a kick likely to come his ability to read the body language and and kick shape and be gone like he's gone ahead of the kick nearly um, which obviously means that it's so hard to find grass against him he's probably just a complete player and I think we're seeing him better with the ball in hand now I think he's He's a better broken field runner than he was. Um, uh, he was never a bad one, but he, that's I see him now as a counter attacking threat. Um, and I think teams are going to get more and more wary about kicking to him. I don't think you can also underestimate in the defensive system of a 13 2 system how important your fullback is because he's one of the two people who are in the backfield all the time. Um, and there's a huge amount of space for you to cover, um, particularly when you're trying to build line speed how teams can break it down is, you know, is by kicking and making sure that balls kind of land in your hands rather than getting grass is huge. And when you watch him and you player cam him from in behind his work rate and chat is just off the charts. And people would say that, you know, you know, back to Jared Payne's time, the defensive system, how important a 13 is and you're kind of defensive leader. And that's true, but I don't think 15s in particular in that style of defense how um you know how important they are how the organizational skill is and particularly if one of your wingers can get lost from their backfield how their micro communication to that individual is it's you know his is is top top class he's one of the best 15s in the world and i think his engine just allows him to 
under fatigue to continue to chat and just organize in, in that backfield role. And you see he's swapping guys in and out kind of on the edges from kind of 20, 30 minutes, uh, 20, 30 meters away. Um, and balls very rarely find grass, which is a huge asset to to the backfield cover in, in that defensive system of 13-2. Yeah, and it's probably no harm for whoever is going to be coming in next week that they've probably got an extra few training sessions to get up to speed and everything with, with no game this weekend. On the on the performance as a whole then against Italy, Bernard, the um it's it's hard to know what to make of it really. Italy weren't really up to much. But ultimately, Ireland, with six changes, heavily rotated team, coming in off the back of a big high and a big win against France the week before, like all round, it was probably a, a good afternoon's work. And I think maybe as well, I, I think a few of us were saying it afterwards that on one hand, you wonder maybe should they have run up the score a little bit more. But then at the same time, I think if you're getting beyond 50 to 60 points, you start to question what you're actually getting from the game itself. Yeah, I, I thought Farrell afterwards said it was clunky. I think that was quite harsh. I, I thought it was a lot of really good stuff. Um, it was interesting. I, I met um, one of the Italian backroom team before the match uh, and for coffee, and he actually said that he worked with France, he worked with Racing, and he said that this Italian team, talent-wise, uh, in terms of athleticism in the back line in particular, in terms of their ability to fix people and shape and all those things that go into being a good attack, that they are miles ahead of some of the players he's worked with in international level in France. But so I think the most pleasing, if you take that into account, to keep them to zero um, is, is probably the most pleasing aspect because we were never really stressed. Um, and I think they'd be delighted with that. I think our defence has taken a, a step forward from the World Cup um, uh, and we're very good at slowing down opposition ball, good spacing and we're starting to get a killer mentality you know so the the Joe McCarthy jumping out of the line but making the hit uh, that makes it a little bit more unpredictable um, and that, that's a good thing to have in your defence once there's safety valves in around that um, if there's a mistake and I, I think we've taken a big step forward there and I think 36 nil, six tries it's it's a good outing you know considering the emotional high of the previous week the atmosphere is pretty dead you know, whatever the changes the fire made, um, you know, from the bench, but also starting team, I I think it's a, a it's a very very um, a very good day at the office for us. And Johnny, ultimately, they do look a gear or two pretty much ahead of everyone else at the moment through these opening two matches. Uh, yeah, definitely, and I think their squad is is really you know showing that in terms of the. The rotation that they had and someone like Stuart McCluskey comes in, carries really hard, gets his off, you know, getting his offloads away, um, sitting down defenders, and he a couple of really good kind of uh deep pull passes where you know they're running that rap play, uh, you know, and very accurate in in his passing. Um, yeah, it was a it was a really good performance. There's a couple of things I think that comes probably with the rotation that you know, people were probably weren't on the same wavelength a couple of times, you know, Casey went down the blind and James Lowe kind of overruns it or they knock on there just on, on kind of those late shoulder balls. Um, but that's just combinations too. But all in all, you'd be be very happy. I think Bert's, you know, the defence has stepped up. It's interesting that they're pro probably bringing a bit more line speed and a bit more licence to those guys reading in behind shapes and getting forward and getting uh, pushing through the shapes to put them under pressure. It's so hard for an attacking team, regardless of who they are, how good they are, um, to exploit space when they continually go backwards. Um, and that's something that was very, very evident uh, throughout the game. Usually you'd have a set piece, you know, on the 10 metre. By the time the ball was turned over, they'd nearly be back in their own half. Um, and that's a huge asset that they have within, within their defensive system. Um, and they're really bringing that into, you know, that you're seeing that and you, you, you certainly saw that on Sunday. On that defense, Ireland's defensive setup, then Birch, like Johnny was just talking about there as well. And there was a stat afterwards, Ross Petty, um, he'd be a very well-known rugby stats guy on, on X said Ireland conceded 12 tries in their last 12 Six Nations games. I can't remember who was second on that list, but it was up in the 20s. We don't really talk about Ireland's defense as much as we do South Africa's or as much as maybe we were doing France during the World Cup and, and other countries as well. Simon Easterby has 
not really been getting the credit I think he probably deserves since switching from the forwards role out to defence a few years ago. Yeah, it's been very consistent. Uh, I suppose that's what makes the the New Zealand game and how poorly we defended in that game even more um, more frustrating. Like to get beaten from that four man line out, the chip space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like because uh, there was no obvious signs of that. I think like we were going into games. Um, very comfortable that we could defend, but more we we're probably more comfortable we could out attack the opposition as well, and that's where the focus has been on our attack because it's so complex, or looks so complex, but actually it's very simple. But everybody's on the same page, and I think now you're seeing, you're seeing against probably some teams who maybe taking a step back, um, or or struggling a little bit, or rebuilding. That they have no answer. It's based on two games, but that they're really struggling to break us down, and and that the the best of all the provincial work, um, I think there's been an extra layer added for maybe the Nina Bar influence. But as you said, like twelve games, twelve tries. I mean that you know this Lens defense, or this Irish defense was a very well established defense before, and and to be for sure hasn't got the plaudits, and he's just a very quiet fella. You know what I mean? Um, he doesn't look for for plaudits, but I think he's in prime position to be the head coach when when Farrell goes to uh, um when Farrell goes to the Lions. I think he's incredibly experienced, incredibly well respected, and has flipped from being forward coach into forwards and defence and now exclusively looking after one area of the game which is which is performing incredibly well. Yeah, and, and uh, like then the fact obviously that he was given responsibility for the emerging Ireland uh eighteen yeah. months ago, it probably does you can join up the dots with these things and see that they obviously have plans for him to take on more responsibility as the years go on. Yeah, I think so. And and yeah, and, and well deserved. Like he just he's gone about in a quiet way. Um players believe in him. Apparently, I, I suppose Gary Ringrose about it, and he's he, like he'll often throw ideas to the to the leadership group and say, Look, what do you think it is? What would you do in a situation? So um he involves them and then once they commit to something. It's it's locked in. There's no second guessing. And uh, yeah, as you said, um, you know he was obviously a phenomenal player for Ireland. Very similar as a player, he was like very underrated, um, but very important to Ireland, particularly under Eddie Sullivan's reign. And uh, yeah, he, he's he's gone about his coaching career in, in a similar manner. Mm. The we spoke about the changes earlier on, Johnny, and you mentioned Stuart McCloskey as someone who came in and did a really really good job. Who else? Who else of those players who came in and were given a chance, either a rare chance to impress, like Craig Casey or like a Ryan Baird, or maybe someone like James Ryan, who's an established player who got his chance to get back into the team. Who can who do you think is coming out of that game pretty pleased with with what they did on Sunday? Uh, I think Ryan Baird, uh, his athleticism is is off the charts. Um, like you see that break he makes, uh, you know, he he they run a um you know, a, a tip in the space and then he's gone, he's over kind of, you know, 60, 50, 50 meters. And he's very hard. It looks like he, it looked like at one stage he was going to finish it from, from his own 22. I just think the athleticism he can bring, particularly even at line out time, but also around the park. Um, he's someone like, you know, that he's kind of a bit like Tom Croft in that mold in terms of that athleticism in those wider channels and having them out, but he's probably more physical and bigger stature than probably Tom Croft was. Um, and we don't have those like kind of types of players with that out and out pace in that kind of six second row. Um, and then I thought uh, Casey was, was good. He had a few, as I said already, a couple of things where he probably scooted down the blind or a bit of, um, you know, a bit of inaccuracy once or twice. Um, but he was very much a live wire. Uh, um, and uh, I suppose something that he would have been frustrated with was kind of that kick out on the full, you know, in the first half. Um, but in general, I think Ryan Baird just adds something. Um, from an athleticism perspective, that adds another string to the bow, be it as a starter or coming off the bench when other teams are fatigued. Um, and he's picking up those one on ones in those wider channels. And Birch, like staying on Ryan Baird, we've for years obviously we've we've been talking about his athleticism and his ability to to run in broken fields and you know really really pull teams apart with his pace and physicality. But one thing we're really seeing actually in the last year or so is how important he's becoming in line out defense, and it looks like 
whenever the day comes for Peter O'Mahony to to step away from the Irish rugby team, there's a a natural replacement there as the the key man and you know at the at the front of that line out on defence. He's pulling off a few steals in the last few months and is disrupting teams really really well in that area. Yeah, and it's it's a massive string to to his bow, which he didn't have. In actual fact, the talk a couple of years ago was he he actually wasn't that coachable in in terms of line out drill and line out detail, and that was one of the reasons that he didn't get as many minutes as maybe his athleticism warranted. But there's been a massive shift in him because um, he's always look at like he has a gift in terms of speed and power, um, and that's there's a there's a premium on that in the game. Uh, so he's always going to be of interest, but I think over the last year, his tight work, his his defensive mall work, his defensive lineup work, his uh, work rate off the ball, um, his post contact uh, tackle work, post tackle work, have gone you know a long way towards being the complete back row, and and I think six is his position now. I think we're obviously seeing likes of Joe and uh, come true, and James Ryan and Ty Byrne and, and Ian Henderson. And Ty Burnley Henderson can both play six, but they're a long way behind what what he can do. Um, and I think, yeah, Pete, Pete obviously is still the man of possession, I think. But, um, you know, with the likes of Ryan Baird, Tom O'Hearn as well, in fairness, before that injury, he was, start, he was starting to have, you know, um, a big influence on games. And uh, suddenly we have a bit of depth there. And I, I just think, talking back to other players, uh, I thought Finley Bealham had a very good game. Um, and it's really important for us to, to, to for him to have that game and, and have a little bit more depth there, even though Ty Furlong is obviously was very impressive against France. Um, that was really pleasing for him. So we're in a we're in a good place. Got a, the only position that we're really worried about, I think, is is that fullback cover. And as we mentioned earlier, there's probably three or four players there, and obviously two lads injured who we'd be very comfortable with with starting, and it's just a case of seeing if they can uh, step up. The biggest, I think the biggest compliment you could pay Finley Bealham actually, just quickly, is that it's at a point now where if he's starting and Tyg Bur- or Tyg Furlong isn't available, it's not even really a talking point anymore. No. No, and that's that's huge for us. I mean, that's a long time. Um, so we kind of went John Hayes, Mike Ross, Tyg Furlong, uh, you know, in terms of dominant tight heads first. And to be fair, because of their durability and quality, we never we always were a little bit worried about what was behind him and, and maybe that was false, false anxiety, whatever. But I think Bealham over the last two years has shown um, both for Connacht and for Ireland that we should have no worries if he, if he's starting. Yeah. He's in uh, in great form the last few years. Johnny, uh, out in the back line, James Lowe, player of the game. Is he getting to a point now where if he isn't available for a match for Ireland, like if, if his absence post World Cup had had tail off into the Six Nations, Ireland would be looking very very different on that side of the pitch with with what he's offering in terms of what he can do with the ball in hand, which we've seen from day one when he came to the country, but also the the steps he's taken defensively over the last two to three, two to three years, and then on top of that, just his ability to and accuracy as well. It's it's both distance and accuracy with that left foot in terms of exits. Yeah, I think the left foot is a huge asset of his uh, and that's improved over the last kind of two years. As you say, he always had a big boot, but the accuracy of what he's able to do now and it's very clear they have a, a clear setup, you know, get him in behind and then they have options to to do both, um, you know, off a run kick or uh, on the left side off a run kick on the right or him directly behind and then they can also run kick off the right. So it just opens up both fields, uh, both sides of the pitch. Um, and then, you know, his ability to his power in those kind of close quarter finishes, you know, he takes two and three guys over the line with them. Like if a one on one, he's you know, one on one, five meters out, he's nearly 100 percent. But even on a two V one against him, his footwork and power to get a, to kind of get in between the two soft shoulders is ridiculous. Um, yeah, he is one of our kind of leading lights. Um we lose him you know obviously Stockdale has that ability but you know he was there at the at the weekend um his performances have lacked kind of where they were two three years ago but he does give you that left foot option which is a huge asset in any uh in any team being able to kick both sides so um but yeah uh, James Lowe has been unbelievable the last uh, uh the last while and he's he is someone that 
that you would miss if if he wasn't fit. Yeah, he's in outstanding form and incredibly actually Birch as well, like isn't showing any lack of match fitness, having only played a couple of games coming into the Six Nations. It really has been impressive how quickly he's been able to hit the ground running again. Yeah, and that's probably something that, and this may sound harsh, whatever, that I might not have said about him or I might have been worried about him before, you know, kind of player like like a horse, uh, a bit stuffy, that might need a couple of runs to, to get going. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, he obviously had missed some time, time back home, but he's just come back in bouncing and really enjoying it. And I think his enthusiasm is infectious. Players love him, who play with him. Opposition don't like him. Uh, and... He's doing all the right things. Before I uh, move on to, to other games and start looking at Wales and and England as well, the um scr- or scrum and mainly line-out Birch, early signs over the first couple of games, certainly from a line-out point of view, were 100% through, I think, about 25, 26 line-outs on two games. Yeah. I know Italy didn't really compete whatsoever at the line-out. You know, they, they were just letting Ireland win the ball and trying to, to deal with them on the ground. If against Wales you start seeing the likes of David Jenkins and Adam Beard gone up and contesting a little bit more than what Ireland and France have been, would you be confident that Ireland that what you're seeing from Ireland is going to hold up to a contest, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think so. I don't think we're gonna stay we're obviously not gonna stay at hundred percent, but yeah. um I thought Wales in fairness defended the English line very well and, and Jenkins and Adam Beard. Um, were threats and menaces in the air, but I think the whole confidence of the Irish lineup, the slickness, the the speed of throw, the movement, um, the understanding of of where to win it, uh, is vastly improved. And that's just again, you're just looking back on uh, so unfortunate, but that's the way it was. Um, but all, and all they can do now is, is fix it, is fix it, and um, they have. And for for play to O'Connell and and his leadership group, when you know Peter wasn't playing this weekend, and we always. Play. Uh, we always put some of an excellent lineup performance down to his ability to to influence things, but we did it without him. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we will we'll attack the rest of Six Nations. The biggest challenge for us will be Twickenham because I think England's defensive lineout is 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 a is a work of art. So again, a, a good outing against Wales, and we'll go there um, with good momentum. It's funny you mentioned the like the World Cup again. It is it is mad how often during these first couple of rounds of matches where you see something you just go, oh god. <laughs> yeah, it's natural. I, like, I, I genuinely think by the end of the Six Nations, I won't be looking back. But effectively, it was the third game. Yeah, uh, a goal. So, um, hundred percent and two. Yeah, that's great. But um, it's just we have to. That's a reference point. Unfortunately, we hopefully win the Six Nations. On um on Wales then. So they're coming to to Dublin in a couple of weeks' time, or t- about 10 days' time at this stage, Johnny. The, um, they're not, look, they're not world beaters. Two defeats out of two. They've ran Scotland and England close enough in, in both of those games. But they do seem to have a purpose about them, and they do seem to kind of know what they know what they want to do. And it was interesting, um, it was interesting on Saturday watching them against England, where England obviously are you know, trying this new defence under Felix Jones and they're shooting right up. It was very, very interesting to see Wales trying to work around that and dotting loads of kicks down into the corner to try just beat them around that corner. It didn't always work, but it was it was interesting to see them trying to figure out and roadmap a way around that sort of defence. And it'll uh, leading, I suppose, to what I was going to say is it'll be interesting to see how they come up with something similar to try find a route around Ireland's defence. Yeah, and it was obviously a clear tactic. Um, I was listening to uh, Jim Hamilton and uh, and stuff, and he was saying that I didn't hear it, but he was saying that Dan Bigger before the game basically more or less gave away their whole game plan in terms of how they were going to attack and what they were going to do, um, in terms of chasing that kick space, um, and they went at it really well. They had a clear plan. They stuck at it, and they were probably unlucky in a, in a couple of respects. But yeah, it's it's clear, and people know that. If you want to kind of get after and try and stop that, um, you know that that line speed, you do have to exploit the space that it leaves. But your kicking game has to be really, really accurate to do that. Um, but yeah, like they're they're a team that obviously have lost, you know, their most experienced players over the last kind of six to twelve months. Um, they're a team in transition, but they're a team that when they play Wales, when everyone rocks up to play for Wales, they really step up. 
Um, and you know they were, you know, one or two plays away from 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 getting a a big win. Um, um, over there they played really well, and and but it was interesting. They obviously have real belief in in what they're being taught to do, and and it was interesting that they they had that clear game plan and they stuck to it right right, right towards the end. We lost you for a moment there, Birch. I was saying to Johnny that we were talking about Wales and how. Yeah. It might be a bit patronising to say they're not world beaters, but they do seem to have an idea of what they are. And they, in fairness to them, they weren't afraid to have a go against England, trying to put as many kicks down towards those corners to, to get around the defence and even just chipping into just in behind the first line of defence as well. Didn't always work out. But for an inexperienced side like that, with so many players coming in uh, just in the last 12 months alone, I, I have enjoyed actually seeing them try to just work things yeah. out in the moment. Yeah. Look, I, I think Gatlin's actually delighted with them. And, and I think, obviously, the turning point at halftime, that game could have went either, could have went, could have went anyway for them in, in Cardiff against Scotland. And if, I mean, anyway, it could have been the end of Gatlin. Like, if that had continued the way it was going, it would have been impossible to, to lift them. And, and the, the whole lack of, Stability in the Welsh game would have all put pressure on that senior team, even though a lot of them are are very young and 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 haven't been at fault for for some of the failings. Um, but they got a great second half against Scotland, and they went to Twickenham, which they loved. Like the Welsh against England, it's a massive game in their psyche. Gatlin's had success there, um, in in the past. They believe in Gatland, and they, you know, he's talking about historically. When you put on that red jersey, outperform some of your parts, and um, there's probably not a huge. That, there was a plan to attack that counter, uh, to counter that blitz with kicking, which is pleasing to see. But also, I thought with ball in hand, they hit back inside that blitz. You know, for the um, for the Kane try for uh, um for when they split them open uh, up the middle as well uh, with an inside ball. So they had they had plans around that. And they obviously have Neil Jenkins. They have Alex King. They have Rob Howley. You know, very experienced coaches. And they're able to they're able to find um, find opportunities in that. So I think they, they're they buzzing now. They're, like, it's crazy because they've lost two games. But they're actually buzzing in terms of feeling that they're on track. And, and they're playing fast. And they're playing without um, any real worries. And that, and that could be dangerous, but there's there's two there's two divisions in this. There's 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 us and France in terms of talent, and obviously France are way off where they where they could be, so they're they're back down with the rest. Um, and Wales and Scotland uh, for me are and Italy are, are behind, and England England are playing like a team who are down there, like obviously not convincing against Italy, not convincing against Wales. Um, but I think they have the biggest margin of progression, like their game plan. Could actually really frustrate us, um, but in if, if you play against the others, it's a 50 50 game, if that makes sense. So, um, and I think they're going to Scotland, they're talking about evolving their attack to beat Scotland. They can't try and outrun Scotland because their attack isn't anywhere near as uh, as progressed, uh, hasn't progressed anywhere near as much because of lack of time. Um, so they'll go to kicking game and defense, and that could be enough to beat them, and likewise. Like realistically, to beat Ireland and Twickenham, to beat Ireland and Twickenham, do they, um, do they try and evolve their attack, or do they play the type of game that very close, very nearly beats South Africa in a, in a in a World Cup semi final when on form there was no contest, and that's the reality of it. So I'm worried about England. I'm not worried about Wales, um, uh, because I think that is they will play the type of game that can, I suppose, neutralize a lot of our attack. Hey, I might just make one final point on on Wales before. Moving on, Johnny, and it's the fact that through, through what two games they have now conceded nine penalties in total across those two, and I'm pretty sure they went they did not concede a penalty in the entire second half against Scotland and the entire first half against England. You add up the points totals from those two halves, and I think it obviously like it tells you what we already knew about rugby. If you keep if you can keep the penalty count down. You're going to give yourself an opportunity in games. Yeah, because you don't give. I know, the it's, I know it's a very, very obvious thing for me to be saying. 
Yeah, but if you can not give away penalties, you know, from the far 10 meter in, you're not giving any team entries into your 22. And most teams, you know, at, at international level are very dangerous in the 22 with power games coming around the corner. Um, you know, their pick and goal game. But like when you stop teams getting entries into your half and um, you know, you you don't give them easy pressure releases when you're on top. Um it's very hard then for teams to get that momentum and they, you can just suffocate teams by being really, really disciplined and playing in the right areas. And your discipline will lead to that. Um, if you control your discipline, you're going to be playing in the right areas because you're not giving anyone easy entries. It's then down to your defence. If you can make your tackles, then you know teams are going to find it very, very hard to get into your, uh, get into your half. So um, that is something, if they can manage to keep their discipline against Ireland and not give Ireland opportunities to launch inside their half, then, you know, the, the, they have a chance. But that's, um, you know, that that's discipline also comes from a lot of off the pitch stuff and your belief in the system and, and sticking true to that. So, you know, I think, as Bert said, the Welsh, you know, they're definitely playing above the the sum of their parts and uh, and discipline. That a lot of that comes from all your off pitch work. Mm. Yeah, just on just on that, Neil. I think I think it's a complete outlier. I think um, it's like people who are criticising Jack Crowley's goal kicking percentage based on the two games. It's not enough of a period of time to actually say they're a discipline team. Like no Gatlin team has ever shown that tendency before, and I think. It's 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 good by them and they are tidy, but realistically, it's because Scotland collapsed and stopped playing, and uh, the referee in that game was obviously rewarding the team who were, um, who who were attacking, um, and then obviously England the first half they had two yellow cards themselves, so they were in kind of protection zone. So uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a lovely stat for them to talk about, uh, and obviously had an influence on making them competitive in the two games, but I, I think. Like against Ireland, if they if they haven't conceded three or four penalties in the first half, uh, I I'd be shocked, you know. I, I um and if they keep it under ten, I'd say that'd be that their discipline side then. But I, I think they need another, they need to prove it one more time against a team who who actually uh play for more than forty minutes. Yeah, as you say, they're going to be seriously tested a lot more in terms of pace and you know multi phase against Ireland than they would have been against England. Let's move on to Scotland and France then, um. Before I talk, well, the Scots have put the Scots have put an appeal into World Rugby, so that results oh. we might have to we might have to talk about that in a different different way if, if they get the win. To get yeah, the win. it's like you, uh, um, it's like when Thierry and me uh, handballed the ball. <laughs> we look for another team in the World Cup. You took the words out of my mouth. So uh, it's story on the BBC yesterday. Scotland Scottish Rugby are calling on the sports governing body to acknowledge that a game defining mistake was made in the last seconds of Scotland's Six Nations game against France. So it was the decision not to reward Scotland to try. Sam Skinner thought he grounded the ball. Uh, I think replays probably showed he probably did just with the, the way the protocol went. Um, They weren't able to 100%, 100% say for definite that the ball was grounded. Um, On the broader point of it all of this though, Birch, like I've been in press conferences so many times with Irish coaches where they're talking, you know, we asked them about something that happened the previous week, or maybe it was line out issues or scrum issues. And they point out, well, world rugby have told us that, you know, mm. those penalties should have, should have actually gone to us. Yeah. Are we reaching the tipping point now? And I don't want to just mention Scotland in this, because as I say, it is, no, we're all in it. Have we just reached the tipping point where like, what is the point of, being able to tell everyone, well, World Rugby told us that we actually should have won the game. Um, zero, zero, really. I think it's a sign that they're desperate to pick that team up. Like you think about it, so Scotland, Scotland got a win for the first time in twenty-two years in Cardiff, but the nature of how they won meant they got onto the bus without actually having that boost to your self-belief that you should get from having done something like that. Do you know what I mean? And then. They actually have a very poor French team, but would have been a good scalp for them. Um, they make a, an error, I think, not to take points or to go for a scrum um, at, uh, for, after the yellow card for uh, Antonio. And they don't get points out of it. France escape. And then they managed... France had no interest in playing. Like, it was a terrible performance from France. And they lead, they lead 16-10, and they just stopped playing and... and um, it becomes a Ramos kicking it to, to Finn back, or whatever. And the, 
like they lost all the enthusiasm, all the energy from the crowd, um, which actually, you know, at home you want to harness that and embrace that. And then obviously they they, they concede that try from the from the scrum defensive couple of defensive errors, and then they get another chance to win it. Like, and then they find a way to lose. Like it's it's incredible when you think about it. So the last play of the game against Wales was Duan van der Mer putting hand over the, all the goal line mm. to try and get a bonus point win, which would have been five points. Um, and he puts the ball down on the defender's ankle, and the last play of the game to beat Fran- uh, to beat France was um, Skinner putting the ball down, and initially on the ankle. Let's be fair; like that's, yeah. I I agree with you, probably a hundred percent or ninety nine percent sure it was grounded, but effectively it was that it was basically two balls being put on someone's ankle instead of the ground, which has now left him in I'd say disarray uh, to a certain extent, a lack of confidence, lack of belief, and I think Gregor and the the, the management team are trying to find, I suppose, validation from World Rugby so they can say to their players, well, look, it actually, we actually beat France, even though they only have uh, one point and France have, have four. Johnny, what's your what's your take? And I'm not I'm not so much interested to to know if you think it was a try or not, but more just the um uh like is this ultimately just trying to deflect as much as possible from the fact that Scotland have have blown a win? Uh, yes and no. I think there's an issue around, um, you know, you say the questioning or what is the TMO coming in on and what's he not like. So say, for instance, in the Ireland game, he, he calls the foot trip on the, I think he calls the foot trip on the Italian player. Yeah, Menoncello, I think. Yeah. Um, but like he just radios in and said, oh, there's foot trip there. You need to look at it. You know, and that's it. There's no questions. It's grand. They look, yeah, fine. Foot trip done. Where when it comes to this, he's not involved. He's hamstringed by the question that's asked. Um, it's it's the process that associated to it has has created all of this. And there's no visuals to say that it was a hundred percent grounded either way. And because the ref asked the question, I it, ref says, "Well, I have no try." then they're kind of hamstrung too. So there is a process that probably needs to be looked at and changed and also needs to be quickened up. And it'd be very clear, okay, uh, TMO can come in on all of this, he can come in on this, or, but it's just, it's going to be an extra set of eyes and it's just a conversation rather than this is what I have. You know, like, because, you know, we have all the camera angles, we have that, it needs to be used in the correct way and it's not, being used in the correct way and people are talking about it all the time and rugby is very complicated anyway and it's just been made more complicated um and i think that's that's the major difficulty but it's you know who how is it sorted i think is the the biggest thing from an overall um that incident yeah probably was a try they're very unlucky but referee's decision is the referee's decision and they get stuff wrong, TMOs get stuff wrong, but I think the process associated to how they got to that decision is also wrong. Well, speaking I of... think, Neil, we've had we've had six games. We've had six games and we've had pretty low quality, I think, to be fair. Like we've had drama in Scotland. Um we've had drama in Cardiff. The Italian England game wasn't wasn't great. Ireland France wasn't great because it was one sided, to be fair. But like we haven't had you know, Six Nations is an amazing competition, but um, we're not talking about the game as such. We're talking about the DuPont law and how boring it is. We're talking about uh, maybe an incorrect TMO decision because of because of a lack of clarity. Like there's there's a massive need to to make the game simpler, um, and uh, and also I'd say make it easier for referees to be. I think they're really struggling to. To keep up, um, and that's no disrespect to them. The game has moved on, um, and technology doesn't always help them either. Um, like I think the the if you like, I I watch a lot of NRL. NRL is a great spectacle. It's it's uh fan friendly for people who are there, TV friendly for fans at home. TMO and decisions are really really quick, really quick. But they they give the benefit of the doubt. They're nearly trying to find a way not to give the try. You know what I mean? Like and and even so, some of the things. You'll see like really acrobatic wings, you know, diving to score in the corner. Um, and they like they'll generally go, they'll give the benefit of the doubt to the attacker. Um, and they don't have the hold up system that we have, you know, with picking goals there. But yeah, that, that's that's a simple thing, you know what I mean? Like make a decision quickly, 
um, and uh, go with go with your gut, or the likely probability. And look at Ireland, if Ireland or France there, and we um, are, and we say there's no evidence. And we can like that's the other side of the coin. But I think once it changes, everyone will will eventually get the uh, will see the value in it. But at the moment, we're stuck kind of in these protocols, and they can actually they can actually hinder common sense. And even so, even around some of the high shots, etc. They can actually box the TMO or the bunker system or the referee into a corner when you know realistically the the the, the rugby like even go back to the I know there's a lot of people think I'm wrong but the red card last year in England um in the England game with Freddie Stewart or whatever you know I think once you go into the into the into the protocol system there and follow the the guidelines you're screwed you can only find a red card whereas you know I I think you know there's there's times when we know the likelihood is there's no intent there. It was an accident, it was a rugby collision, a rugby incident. And likewise, that's probably it. That's 99% sure a try, you know, but we have no footage of it being over the line. So you can't, I don't feel, I feel sorry for Brian McNeese there. I think, you know, the fact it took him four and a half minutes, it was pretty obvious. He was trying to find what he knows, I'd imagine was the right decision, which was the try, but he couldn't. And, and he, he's a man of integrity. So he, he, he stuck within the protocols. You know, I mean, he did his job, did his job. And as as you say, like he he spent four four and a half minutes looking yeah. over that, and the the key the key phrasing in all of this is to to change those decisions or for the team team to be able to ward a try in that instance, it has to be yeah. try it, no try. It, yeah, it has to be a, or well, but it has to be a clear and obvious try. He has to yeah. clearly and obviously see the ball grounded on the line, and I think by its very definition, if you need to look at a replay more than three times, yes, it's yeah. not clear and obvious. If it's clear and obvious, you see it. Within two or three, uh, two or three. Yeah, yeah. So I think you can simplify it like that. We are running out of time. I do want to quickly mention though, and you mentioned the Dupont law and the the ten meter law or whatever we're going to call it at the moment. And it's interesting. I saw you tweeting. Super Rugby this season are mm. going to be essentially binning Back. that part of the law. If if globally we do see this thing scrapped within the next few months, do we have Finn Russell to thank for it after he kind of Whoa. exposed the ridiculousness of it in the last two games by just catching the ball and standing still for several seconds. Like, I mean, is, yeah, it's interesting because they're a team. I think, like, do you think a player like him, who we all associate with being very, very exciting, is he trying to make a point by actually just standing still and saying, look at how stupid this is? Yeah, possibly he's strong enough uh, mentally to, to kind of do that. Like he has been the most obvious um, person doing it. Um, and like, and again, he's a player who, Who's natural is to, is to attack. I was with Stuart Hogg yesterday, uh, and like he said, it would have frustrated him so much, and it was it would have frustrated Finn, it would frustrate Gregor because they used to light up when they saw a ball go over their head and and look to to sprint back to to see assess where the opportunity is to run, and then it's just it's just an absolute killer. And yeah, look at I think I think the prevalence of what we've seen in in fairness to Scotland and the uh, uh, Scotland Wales game, Scotland France game in particular has put it up in lights. Um, Super Rugby obviously have time to adapt. Super Rugby, I was talking to a friend of mine coach in New Zealand and he said, there's never been as little interest in this Super Rugby competition. I mean, New Zealand Rugby is on its knees. Um, the All Blacks, what they did in the World Cup, um, you know, maybe stop the rot or stop the focus, but realistically, they need the Super Rugby competition to, to catch the imagination. Um, obviously, they're, they don't like playing each other all the time. And then obviously there have been the Australians have been very uncompetitive, and the South Africans have come north. So um, they are going to apparently be more radical. That's not radical. That's just common sense rule. But yeah. they're going to try and find um, ways of making the game easier to play, easier to watch, uh, easier to coach uh, without becoming rugby league. And I think if that works there, you know, it's going to be uh, give a roadmap for what can happen here. Nothing can change mid-competition. That would be unfair on players and coaches. So um, I'm actually part of a working group. We're getting together after the World Cup or after the Six Nations with World Rugby. Uh, and it's a load of referees, coaches, uh, administrators to talk about basically the laws uh, and try and find what we can do. So I would love to think that we can definitely get rid of the Pont Law for the summer tours and beyond. Um, and we can start looking at other areas. And maybe it's now that that, that example... Uh, of Sam Skinner, you know, that's something that we can actually say, well, look, this is the issue here and may, uh, talk about making it better, making it easier for, for officials to, to do their job. I mean, imagine being Nick Berry this week or or Brian McNeese. Like, it's horrible. It's horrible for Gregor Townsend, but it's equally horrible for them because they were so hamstrung by what 
they are told they need to do. You shouldn't have revealed that. You're going to be inundated with direct messages now. Oh, uh, no. I'm fair. It's looking. It's good. It's like, I think the, the reason I'm there is because um, hopefully I can throw some stupid ideas up and maybe one or two of them might land. But no, like we all are invested. We're all passionate about the game. So, um, yeah, like a, it's it's a, it's a working group. It's a, it's, it's a brainstorming. It's a discussion. So, uh, and Phil Davies was head of World Rugby. Mm-hmm. He's that kind of fella. He's an old-fashioned rugby man. And uh, he wants to get people talking about how we can make our game better. Johnny, I'll give the final word to you. You're not secretly a fan of this DuPont Law or anything, are you? Uh, not really, no. no. Um, yeah, I just think it's it, it can be changed very quickly and it'll create more space just making sure that the forwards are retreating every time. And look, fair play for them to, for spotting a gap in terms of the the law itself and and making it aware um you know that's really good professionalism and understanding of the laws and they're playing within the rule book but it obviously you know everyone has to remember and i've said this before on here sport is entertainment we have to entertain if we don't entertain people people aren't going to come back and you know that getting rid of that um will create more of a spectacle and hopefully create more counterattacking opportunity which is what people want to see well said. Well, hopefully in round three, we won't see as much of that, even if it still will be uh, will be in play. Ireland against Wales, that's the 2.15 game on Saturday the 24th. Scotland and England later on that evening at 4.45. And France against Italy is the Sunday game. Uh, rugby coming up this week, it's all URC. Obviously, Friday night, Munster away to the Scarlets at 7.35. Saturday, doubleheader on RT2 and RT player. You've got Leinster against Benetton, first against second in the URC at 3 o'clock, followed by Cardiff against Connacht at 5.15. And Ulster play on Sunday, they're away to the Ospreys at 3 o'clock. We will actually have an extra podcast for you on Sunday. I'll be checking in with Kildare Man and former Clontarf second row Cormac Daly. He's gearing up for his first season of Super Rugby next week, starting next week uh, for the Queensland Reds. So make sure to to tune in there. Johnny and Bernard, thanks a million for joining us as always. And uh, we'll speak to you next week. Thanks, Neil. See you, bye-bye.